So we're going to get started with our second session. Our next speaker is Reverend Rich Lusk. Uh, Rich is the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church, CREC, in Birmingham, Alabama. He has previously served at Auburn Avenue Presbyterian in Monroe, now Church the Redeemer. And Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in Austin, Texas, he's written a number of position papers, articles, and book contributions, as well as Pado Faith, a primer on the mystery of infant salvation and a handbook for covenant parents, and uh, Truth uh, and Three New Lies, a commentary in the book of Ruth. Both those books, along with Michael Foster's book, is, is out on the book table out there. He and his wife, Jenny, have four children. Rich has a BS from Auburn University and an MA from the University of Texas. And if Michael is the, the low-level dealer of red pills, Pastor Lusk is one of his suppliers. So please welcome Pastor Rich Lusk. Good to be with you. Good to be back in Texas. Jenny and I are excited to uh, be with you and see some familiar faces. It is great to be here, great to see what's going on at King's Cross. Uh, I've known Garrett for several years, and if he is your pastor, if you're at King's Cross, you're in good hands, I can assure you of that. Uh, I've spoken at a conference with Michael Foster before. And uh, when I spoke with him uh, at this conference, there were several other speakers, not just the two of us. It was a, it was a big conference. And, uh, but with all those speakers, I had to speak right after Michael. And uh, he was a tough act to follow then, and he's a tough act to follow again tonight. Uh, Michael is doing the find a spouse part of this conference. I'm doing the build a house part. And so in this first talk, I want to focus on Psalm 128. So hear from the Word of God. Blessed is every man who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, you see your children's children. Peace upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask again that you would bless this time that we have, that you would speak to us wisdom and truth from your word, that you would shape our minds and our hearts in the way we live, that we might build our houses for your glory, that we might build our houses in a way that builds your house, your kingdom. Uh, Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to talk about Psalm 128, but really Psalm 128 and Psalm 127 are a pair. Uh, this pair of psalms go together. Sometimes they are called the family psalms or the household psalms. Uh, you could also call them the house building psalms. Uh, we know from the title that Psalm 127 was written by Solomon, but it's likely that Psalm 128 was written by Solomon as well. Now, I say they should be called the house-building psalms for this reason. Psalm 127 opens this way. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And then it goes on to describe the Lord building the house by giving children. In other words, children are the building blocks out of which the house is built. And then the psalm continues, we find that these children are arrows in the hand of their father who defend the house at the city gate. 
Psalm 128 then can be seen as a continuation of Psalm 127. When the Lord builds your house, it's going to look like Psalm 128. This is the blessed man's blessed household. Really, when you look at Psalm 128, it's really like the Garden of Eden restored. It's like a miniature Garden of Eden. It's a place of fruitfulness and feasting. It's a picture of blessing and dominion. Every one of us should aspire to be a part of a household like the one described in Psalm 128. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, there are not many families in the Old Testament that, that did things right. Not many families in the Old Testament that you'd really want to be a part of. Family life is often a mess in the Old Testament, and I think that's one of the reasons that God has given us Psalm 128. Psalm 128 really stands out because it describes the ideal. It describes what we should be aspiring to. It gives us the blueprint or the model or the template. It reveals for us what God's design for the family looks like when it is fulfilled. Marriage and its fruit is described in this psalm. Now, the link that these psalms have with Solomon is important. Solomon, of course, is the consummate man of wisdom. And so we see in these psalms his wisdom for family life. Now, you can take these two psalms and you can say these two psalms are really wisdom for family life. You can go to the book of Proverbs and fill this in with even more practical detail because that's really what Solomon is doing in the book of Proverbs. He is describing for a man what wisdom looks like in his work life and in his marital life. So again, it's, it's really about building a house. But that's what you have in these two psalms, really a, a summary of Solomon's wisdom for family life. But there's something else here to think about. Think back to when Solomon's father, David, died. When David was on his deathbed and he gave his final words. These words can be found in 1 Kings chapter 2. This is how he charged Solomon. He said, I go the way of all the earth, Therefore, be strong and prove yourself a man and keep the way of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, keeping his commands and statutes as written in the law that you may prosper. David says to Solomon, be a man. Now, we might say, isn't that kind of odd? Isn't Solomon already a man? He's certainly a biological male. But this is what David is getting at. We all know that not all men live up to the calling of manhood. Being a man means you should act like a man, and some men don't. The Bible presupposes a sort of normative masculinity that men should conform to. This is a problem I have with modern-day Reformed egalitarians like Amy Byrd. Amy Byrd says this, quote, Men don't need to act a certain way to affirm their masculinity. Their actions are masculine because they are men. So she says there's no standard of masculinity outside of a man that he must conform to. Whatever actions a man does, because they are done by a man, they are masculine. So I would want to say, well, what does that mean for somebody like Caitlyn Jenner? Does that mean that Caitlyn Jenner is acting masculine because he is, after all, a biological male? No, that is absurd. And on Bird's view, David's command, David's charge to Solomon, be a man or prove yourself a man, would also be absurd because Solomon is already a man. Why does he need to be told to be a man? But David gives this exhortation to Solomon because, again, not all men are appropriately manly or masculine. Not all men are good men. Not all men are good at being men. Some men are effeminate. David wants Solomon to do what men are called 
to do, what men are created to do. Uh, Think about this. There's something else here when David is on his deathbed giving this charge to Solomon. And I think both David and Solomon know uh, what's happening here. Solomon would not be a man of war like David. He would be a prince of peace. But Solomon will have a mission. He will have a project. He is to build the Lord's house. He is to build the temple. Solomon will be a house builder. This will be his his life's work. David held a sword. Solomon holds a trowel. David was a fighter. Solomon, a builder. David had a military mission. Solomon has a construction mission. Building a house for God in Jerusalem will be Solomon's great work. And think of what it will take to get this work done. It's going to require wisdom, ambition, vision, drive, competency, skill, initiative, management, leadership, stamina, foresight, planning, persistence. It's going to require mastery of certain aspects of the physical world. He will have to take dominion and subdue certain aspects of the physical world. It's going to require what we sometimes call people skills, that is wisdom about human relationships. It's going to require strength and perseverance to overcome various obstacles that stand in his way. It's going to require directing thousands of workers and overseeing the use of all different kinds of raw materials. It's going to require political skill as he negotiates with Hiram of Tyre for assistance, and on and on we could go. It's going to take wisdom to build the house, to build a house for God. It's going to take manliness. When David says to Solomon, prove yourself a man, this is what he's talking about. Solomon will prove himself a man by building a house. And I want to argue there is an analogy between Solomon building a house for God and every Christian man who gets married and then sets out to build a house for God. See, every Christian man that gets married, this is his mission. He has undertaken a house-building project, a house-building mission. And so every Christian man should say, I want to prove myself a man by how I build a house. I want my household to belong to God. I want to build God's house by building my own house. I want my house to be a house for God, for God to dwell in the midst of my wife and children. I aim to build a house with the Lord's help, a house that looks like Psalm 128. I want to prove myself a man. I want to be strong and obedient. I want that to be manifest in my Psalm 128-like household. Every Christian man who marries should say, I want to build a house based on wisdom, a house that will stand the storms that are to come. This is what every Christian man should want, and Solomon shows us the way. Now, having said all of that, let me make another claim here. While house building is hard work, no doubt, marriage should be easy. Marriage should be easy. If marriage is not easy for you, you're doing it wrong. Marriage should be easy. What do I mean by that? Well, I certainly don't mean there aren't challenges that come our way once we're married. But think about this. God designed man and woman for each other. There is nothing more 
natural than a man and a woman living together in the covenant of marriage as one flesh. Nothing more natural than a man and a woman being sexually attracted to one another, enjoying one another, complimenting and completing one another. God designed marriage for our good to bring us great joy and pleasure. God designed marriage to make life easier and better. Martin Luther said, there is no more lovely friendly and charming communion than a good marriage. To have peace and love in a marriage is a gift that is next to the knowledge of the gospel. Luther said there is the gospel and the joy and comfort that brings us, and then there's marriage and the joy and comfort it brings us. Luther's right. Marriage sweetens life. It is one of the best things in life. One of God's greatest blessings is marriage. Marriage is easy. Now, let me explain this a little bit further. I'm not saying hard things don't happen to married people. Married people go through hard things, a cancer diagnosis, a sick child, a financial disaster, a house fire. But all of those trials are external to your marriage, and you tackle them together with your spouse. A husband and wife help each other through these trials. In marriage, the joys are multiplied and the sorrows are divided. That's God's design. Trials are hard, but marriage is easy, and marriage makes those trials more bearable. Marriage enables us to get through the trials better than we could alone. But what happens all too often is that marriage itself becomes a trial, and marriage actually ends up making life harder rather than easier. In fact, marriage becomes one more trial in a life of trials. Now, I would argue that's contrary to God's design for marriage, but why does it happen? Well, in our day, it especially happens because we don't know how to be married. The, the wisdom and the skills that men need to be husbands and fathers, the wisdom and the skills need that women need to be wives and mothers, have been largely lost on us. Our house-building skills have been Lost. The reason marriage is hard is because we do it wrong. We don't really know how to do it at all. We don't understand what marriage is. It, what, what marriage is. We don't understand what a husband is or what a wife is. We don't understand what marriage is for or what masculinity is for or what femininity is for. Life is an obstacle course. Marriage should not be one of the obstacles. Indeed, marriage should enable you to overcome the obstacles, and that's what I want us to look at recovering this weekend. You know, we live in a, in a day and a time when many people are cynical about marriage, and this has seeped even into the church, but there is no reason to be cynical about an institution that God in his infinite wisdom ordained for our good. Marriage only becomes an impediment to our happiness if we think we know better than God and if we try to redesign marriage instead of trusting in God's design and building according to God's design. God's given us the blueprint. Why do we depart from it and try to construct marriage our own way, try to build the house according to our own lights? What I want to do here is look at the various figures that we meet in Psalm 128, you have the husband, you have the wife, you have the children, you have the grandchildren. I know we won't get to that, but that'd be important to look at too. But you've got these major figures, the husband, the wife, and their children. I want to look at the clues here in this psalm that can help us better grasp and then put into practice God's design for the house. And of course, we'll use other scripture to fill in what's hinted at here. If you want your house to stand, 
If you want God to feel at home in your house, if you want a house full of love and joy, you have to build according to God's blueprint. And this is that blueprint. The wise builder will follow the directions that are embedded in this psalm and in the rest of the scripture. The psalm opens, blessed is the man who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. This is a God-fearing man. We don't talk that way a lot now. Uh, it used to be a common way to describe a godly man, to say he's a God-fearing man. Of course, we know from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom has its inception. Wisdom finds its source in your life when you fear God. That's what leads you down the pathway of wisdom. The fear of the Lord means a man will be courageous because fearing God drives out all other fears. The fear of the Lord means you fear displeasing the Lord more than anything else. Because this man fears the Lord, he does not fear his wife. There are a lot of husbands who are, frankly, more wife-fearing than they are God-fearing. They're more concerned about keeping their wife happy than they are keeping their God happy. They fear confrontation with their wives. They fear correcting their wives. Uh, a man who fears his wife cannot lead his wife, and he certainly cannot build his house in wisdom. So it all starts with fearing the Lord. In this psalm, he's at the table with his wife and with his kids, and you can see he's at the head of the table, which fits because he is the head of his household. In fact, I think it's really important to note the possessive pronouns here. <clears throat> it says, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. Your wife shall be a fruitful vine in your house. Your children shall be olive shoots. Note those possessive pronouns. It's his household. He owns it in the sense that he is responsible for it and he has authority over it. And of course, Scripture is very consistently clear about this, a man's headship over his household. Think about Joshua chapter 24, where Joshua speaks for his whole household and says, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or think about Numbers chapter 30, where the husband and father can nullify vows made by his wife and by his daughter. And if he does not act when he hears about the vow, he still acts to ratify the vow. So even by not acting, he's acting. His headship is inescapable. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, the fitness of a man for church office is measured by how well he has ruled his own household. That presupposes he is the authority figure in his home. He is responsible for his home. One way to make marriage a lot harder than it should be is to depart from this divinely ordained hierarchy and pattern of authority. If you depart from this authority structure in the home, with the man as the head, that's going to make marriage a lot harder than it needs to be. I think we've got a really interesting situation uh, in, uh, in our culture today, and I think this is a problem we have even in the church, uh, maybe especially in the church. We still have traditional expectations for men, to a point, but not for anyone else in the household. And the result is that men are still held responsible for the household, but they don't have any authority over the household. Okay, one of the things about the old-fashioned patriarchal model for marriage or for the household is that it held together responsibility and authority. Now, in modern marriage, the way we do marriage legally in our culture today, men still have the same responsibilities. The same expectations are basically put on men generally. 
Uh, for example, if, they, uh, if a man gets married and, and then his marriage ends in divorce, uh, the state will most likely force him to continue being a provider even for his ex-wife. And that is especially true if he lives in a red state, to be honest with you. But while the man has this responsibility, he has none of the authority. None of the social status or prestige that once made being a husband or a father such an attractive and noble calling for men in the culture. Can you imagine a TV show being rolled out today called Father Knows Best? No. Maybe Father Knows Least. Maybe Father's an idiot. That's what you would see in our culture today. Now, Michael was talking about people who want to get married and what are, you know, what's the strategy for getting married and what do you need to think about if you want to get married. I think one of the biggest problems we have today is that a lot of people don't want to get married. I think this is actually something of a crisis we have. And again, it's out there in the world, but it's also in the church. Why don't people want to get married? Well, you know why so many young men have no interest in getting married? Certainly for godless men... Uh, they can get sex outside of marriage now, so maybe that's why they don't have any interest in getting married. But even many godly young men balk at the idea of getting married. They do not aspire to marriage the way men once did. And I think this is a big reason why. They don't see any upside. They only see a downside to it. They, would, they, 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 they see marriage as it's practiced today, uh, that it would assign to them the responsibility of a traditional husband and father, but it would not grant them any of the authority of that traditional husband or father. So it's all of the authority, all the responsibility, and none of the authority. Now, nobody would take a job where that's how it's going to work. You're responsible for the results, but you have no authority to tell anybody under you what to do. Nobody would take a job like that. And perhaps that's one reason why. I think that is one reason why many men today do not aspire to marriage. Further, most young men who do not want to get married are well aware that his pastors and elders and certainly the Christian counseling industry are likely to further undermine whatever authority he might, have, he might seek to establish in his home rather than support him in it. And if he and his wife ever do go to counseling and she starts to cry in that counseling session, then he's dead meat. He's definitely the bad guy. Definitely the bad guy. Uh, at that point. So many young men wonder today, is marriage worth it? Uh, many married men find marriage frustrating. They find their wives unyielding, and, 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 and they find that their wives seem determined to be in control, and they don't think there's anything they can do about it. And so they're frustrated in their marriages. Uh, too many men, and, and again, this is often because they lack wisdom, they don't understand women very well, or maybe because they fear their wives more than they fear God. Too many married men today, too many Christian married men abdicate this headship role. They just give up on it altogether. And so their marriage falls into a downward spiral. Think about how God has designed marriage to work. This is from Ephesians 5. I won't read it because I think you probably know it. But how God designed a, a husband and a wife to build up one another rather than tear down one another. God designed marriage so that a man's love would feed his, his wife's respect for him. And a wife's respect for her husband would feed his love for her. And so he's giving her the love that she longs for. She is giving to him the respect that he longs for. And they're both blessed by each other. But instead, what you so often have is a passive, abdicating husband 
who, because he's passive and abdicating, it becomes increasingly difficult for his wife to respect him. And because she does not respect him, she becomes disagreeable, controlling. She starts to nag. And so she becomes unlovable in the eyes of her husband. And so instead of this upward spiral where they're blessing each other, there is this downward spiral. That's one question for every married person to ask himself or herself. Is your marriage on an upward cycle of love feeding respect and respect feeding love, or is it on a downward cycle? Men, you cannot abdicate your headship role. You need to understand, women are not fulfilled by being married to weak men who refuse to lead. You might think you are doing her a favor by abdicating and letting her take the reins, but you are not. If you leave a void of leadership in your home, she will try to fill it. She will try to compensate for your lack of masculinity. That will masculinize your wife, which will actually make her less lovable to you. And ladies, if your man has been feminized so that you're no longer really attracted to him, so you no longer admire him, you might need to ask yourself, if I functionally castrated my husband by continually trying to be in control and by belittling him, you need to leave space for him to lead. You need to, lead, you need to yield yourself to his leadership. God designed for the man to be the head so that his masculinity could allow his wife's femininity to flourish. And God designed for the woman to submit to and to respond to and to follow her husband's headship so that her femininity would bring out the best in his masculinity. Nothing makes marriage more burdensome, more difficult, more painful than a dominant wife and a passive husband. But when husbands love and when wives respect, when husbands nurture and cherish their wives and when wives obey and submit to their husbands, marriage is a joy and a blessing. Marriage is easy if you build according to the blueprint. It's easy. Let me keep going here. The whole family is seated at his table. Uh, the family is eating together, family dinners, family feasting is obviously important. Verse 2 says, when you, speaking to and about the man, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. If they are eating the fruit of his, uh, of his labors, what does that tell you? What does that tell you about his role in the home? It tells you he is the provider for his family. Now, we need to be careful here because, of course, women are productive members of the household too, and we'll come to that in a few minutes. But we need to understand here, he shoulders the burden of provision. The burden of performing in this way, the burden of provision falls on his shoulders. Just a quick side note here. Marriages in which the woman is the main breadwinner. Okay, marriages in which the woman becomes the main breadwinner. In those marriages, the odds of the marriage ending in divorce skyrocket. They go through the roof. Now, you can bracket out situations where maybe the man is disabled or in graduate school, something like that. But if this is the pattern of the marriage where she is the main breadwinner, the divorce rate in that kind of marriage skyrockets. And this is not because of the way that we have been socially conditioned, like we've just been brainwashed by the culture to think men should provide, and that's, that's why uh, we're not satisfied with any other arrangement. This is how we are hardwired by nature, where the man is the provider. This is the man's great contribution. Men and women have different factory settings, and we're supposed to live according to those factory settings, and this is one of them. Studies show marriages are consistently stronger and happier when the man is the provider, when the man earns 
more. His sense of manhood is tied up with his ability to provide for his family. And when a woman becomes the main provider for the household, again, unless it's, say, due to some disability on his part, she eventually comes to feel like she doesn't need him anymore. She feels more like his mother than his wife. Women don't daydream about how they can provide for their husbands. Men do daydream about how they can provide for their wives. Men get a great deal of satisfaction providing for their wives, buying a new car for their wives, buying a bigger house for their wives, taking their wives on a vacation and knowing that their work, their labor has provided all of that. Women don't find satisfaction in providing for men in that way. In fact, it becomes a great frustration for them. And of course, all of this traces back to the very beginning. God made Adam and put him in the garden, and God commanded him to cultivate and guard it. The woman doesn't even exist yet. And God commands the man to cultivate and guard the garden. Now, these are priestly tasks, and we could go that direction with it, but these are also masculine tasks, and this is the direction that I want to go with it. What does it mean to cultivate and guard? To cultivate is to provide, and to guard is to protect. And that's what manhood is all about, providing and protecting. This is what men do for their families, protect and provide. They cultivate and they guard. That's the man's contribution. This is the way the man leads. It's also there in Ephesians 5, actually, when Paul is giving instructions to husbands. Paul commands the husband to nourish and cherish his wife. To cherish literally means to keep warm or to shelter. It has to do with protection. And to nourish means to supply what is needed for well-being and health it is to provide. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5 to nourish and cherish your wife, he's saying provide for her and protect her. That's what it means. In fact, it's interesting. Psalm 127 really focuses on the man's role to be a protector. At the end of the psalm, he's finding the enemy in the city gate on behalf of the house that the Lord is building through him. Psalm 128 then goes on to talk about the man as the provider. So Psalm 127 is the protector role of the man. Psalm 128 is the provider role of the man. You see these right next to each other again and again in Scripture. You know, our culture can try to change this. Our culture can try to change gender roles in marriage. Our culture can try to change gender expectations. But our culture cannot actually change human nature. Our culture cannot change the way God has made us. Men are still men and women are still women. Remember, David's exhortation to Solomon on his deathbed was not, be a nice guy. It was, be a man. Men have an obligation to strengthen themselves so they can fulfill their assigned tasks. Yes, it is all by God's grace. The Lord builds the house, but he uses men to do the house-building work. Just as he used Solomon to build a house for himself, so he will use you to build a house for himself. This is the man's calling. God empowers and strengthens men for this purpose, to be protectors and providers in their households. You men, especially you men who are husbands and fathers, you need to know you're wearing a target on your back in our culture. The patriarch, the husband and father, is public enemy number one in our day. Now, yes, it is true. Some men have abused their authority. There is such a thing as toxic masculinity, no doubt. But more men in the church today are actually guilty of toxic effeminacy than toxic masculinity, in my opinion. They're not abusers, they're abdicators. The bottom line for men is this. Marriage is not a democracy. The husband is the head. Men, the buck stops with you. 
It's your family, your wife, your kids, your table, your house. You will answer to God for all of it. Yes, every member of your household is responsible for himself or herself as well. But you are responsible for your household as a whole. And you need to embrace that responsibility. Marriage is not a democracy. You can't have a democracy of two anyway. Christ and the church do not function as a democracy. And of course, that's what marriage is designed to represent. Christ is the head of the church. The church submits to Christ as her head. Trying to run a marriage on egalitarian principles, denying the man's headship, turns marriage into a perpetual power struggle. But men were designed to fight for women, not with women. And women were made to follow a man's lead, not lead a man. The man is the head of the house. Now, men, let me give you a little bit of actionable advice here. First of all, if you're going to be a leader, that means you can't be a reactor. Okay, if you're constantly reacting to what is happening in your house, you're not leading your house. And again, to, to go back to something I just hinted at, uh, men, just being a nice guy will ruin your marriage. If you are passive, spineless, you know, if you're this passive, spineless husband, if you're more of a family butler than a family leader, your marriage will at best be very unsatisfying. At worst, it will completely fall apart. Being nice is not the same as being good. Being a nice guy is not the same as being a good man. And we've got to get that into our heads and into our hearts as men. You are the head, which means you have God-given authority to do what is best for your family. So don't be flimsy. Stand firm. Men, you may think letting your wife run the show, letting your wife take charge will make her happy. No, it won't. It will actually make her resent you. Understand, men, the Bible commands your wife to respect you, so be worthy of respect in how you live. Be a man worth submitting to. Be going somewhere that makes you worth following. Teach your wife how to treat you. Train her in how to respect you. Take charge of your family. A nice guy can never say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A nice guy says, whatever you want, dear. A covenant head, a good man says, whatever God wants, that's what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. So, man, develop your vision for family life, where you want to take your family, and then act on that to get your family there. Don't just sit back. Act. Now, let's turn to the wife. Psalm 128 says that she is a fruitful vine in the heart of the house. It's interesting. In Scripture, women, uh, wives, you could say, Wives are house builders as well. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears her house down. So just as men are called to be house builders in one way, women are called to be house builders in another way. Now, how do wives contribute to the building of their households? If men protect and provide, what does the wife do? Well, if men protect and provide, women nurture and glorify. If men lead, women help. If the man is defined by his mission, the woman is defined by her submission. That is the way that she helps the man in fulfilling the household mission. This is how wives become fruitful minds in the home. 
Now, if you wanted, you could take Proverbs 31 and plug it in here. If you want to ask what does it mean to be a fruitful vine for the wife, you could plug in Proverbs 31 here, uh, the poem there about the excellent wife, the virtuous wife. Proverbs 31 shows a diligent, confident woman caring for her household, being productive in her household, managing her household, all under the headship of her husband who trusts her, who has full confidence in her. We see there that she has wisdom, she has foresight, she is entrepreneurial and creative. The problem is, when you read Proverbs 31 and you look at the woman's role in the home, she's the, the, the consummate homemaker, if you will, home builder uh, in a feminine way. The problem is, it's really hard to make a household look like that in our day. Since the Industrial Revolution, we have hollowed out the functions of the household. And now we outsource all kinds of tasks that used to be done in the home, and especially by the homemaker. I think one of our biggest challenges moving forward is seeking to recover the productive household. I think to do that, we don't need to revert to a pre-modern economy. I don't think that would be wise. But we do need to reconsider the function of the home and the homemaker in our day. The woman in Psalm 128 is described as a fruitful vine. The very next line of the, of the psalm goes on to describe her children. So obviously her fruitfulness includes children. This may be the preeminent way she is fruitful in the home. Think of the original creation mandate in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, her fruitfulness is filling the house. And you fill enough houses and you have filled the earth. Now, there's no moral problem with outsourcing some household functions. But love and fruitfulness cannot be outsourced. Motherhood cannot be outsourced. The nurture and care of a wife and a mother cannot be outsourced. Her feminine glory, her feminine touch in the home cannot be outsourced. Women are replaceable at work. They're irreplaceable at home. No question where the woman is most valuable. Again, this fruitfulness takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. That's the creation mandate. Well, you know what? Satan has his own anti-creation mandate, and we're seeing that anti-creation mandate at work in our culture today. Instead of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Satan's anti-creation mandate goes something like this. Live for yourself, abort babies, depopulate the earth, worship the earth, or some variation of that. That is Satan's anti-creation mandate. Satan wants to tear down the houses that God commands us to build. Satan wants to turn women against men and against their children and against their households. Uh, I remember back during uh, the pandemic, uh, President Biden tweeted, he, he tweeted out how tragic it is that two million women have been locked out of the workforce because they have to care for children and elderly relatives at home. Now, that tweet should get you thinking. Ever wonder why the government would take such a vested interest in separating mothers from their young children? And that's what Biden is saying in that tweet. This is terrible that these women have to stay home with their children instead of being in the workforce. Why would the government want to separate mothers from their young children? You need to figure out the agenda that is at work there. This is an agenda that glorifies a woman's career over and above loving and caring for her own children who happen to be among society's weakest and most vulnerable members. It is an agenda that would allow the state to educate and disciple the next generation instead of mothers. That's what they really want. 
ought to be very suspicious of the kind of agenda reflected in that tweet and quite frankly reflected in a lot of policy proposals that are becoming more and more popular. Now, uh, not all women are called to be biological mothers. We can acknowledge that. Mothering and motherhood uh, are always central to femininity, even if it's spiritual mothership, mother, motherhood or mothering, uh, <clears throat> even if it's spiritual mothering. But biological mothering gives us the paradigm and the template for understanding the purpose of the woman. A woman's body and soul are designed for nurturing life. Womanhood finds its fullest expression in motherhood. Again, this can be spiritual motherhood, but it's biological motherhood that gives us the template for this. In Genesis chapter 3, think about this. Genesis chapter 3, we have sex-specific curses. The man is cursed in one way, the woman in another. The man is cursed in one domain, the woman in another. This is so important. Those curses in many ways hold the key to understanding the different callings we have as men and women. In Genesis 3, the man is cursed in the realm of dominion and work and provision. Thorns and thistles will now make his work of providing for his family much more difficult. He is cursed in this area of life because it is central to his manhood. In Genesis 3, the woman is cursed in the realm of fruitfulness. She will still bear and rear children, but now in great pain. But the thing to notice here is that the curse hits her in this area of life because motherhood is central to womanhood. There's this whole movement now to try to basically make motherhood not so central to womanhood. And, and so you'll see articles come out that say, well, what, what, what Christian women should really strive for is to be like Christ. It's being like Christ and not motherhood that is the goal. Well, that's just a false dichotomy. The question is, how does a woman live like Christ? What does that mean for her? And of course, then her Christ-likeness, how is that fulfilled in the way she lives as a wife and a mother? I would say all of this for the woman is reinforced by Adam renaming his wife in Genesis 3, Eve, which means mother of the living. But again, there's been this rebellion against motherhood. Feminism has led to this revolt against motherhood. Women do not aspire to motherhood today the way they used to. Instead, Girls from their earliest days in our culture are taught in all kinds of ways that what really matters is career, and they should pursue careers just like men would do, just like a man would do. A man's pattern of life, that should be your pattern of life as well. Um, the feminist Shulamith Firestone argued that in order for the sexes to be equal, we must develop technology that will free women from the burdens of motherhood. She basically wanted us to find some, you know, develop some kind of technology that would eliminate the role of motherhood. You know, we'll, we'll have babies in test tubes and we'll raise them in incubators and we can do without, the, the, the woman will be completely free, completely liberated from having to be a mother, from the burden of motherhood. And then she argued, and only then, we can enter a sexless, androgynous, utopian future. You know what happened to Shula Smith? Firestone. Quite fittingly, I would say, she died alone in her home of starvation, where her body went undiscovered for days, if not weeks. That is the dead end feminism leads us to. Now, look, I have no problem. There's no biblical problem with women working and using their talents in all kinds of ways. Women are not confined to the home. Certainly not. But women should prioritize the home. Think about Titus 2. Again, I won't, I'm not going to read this passage for us uh, in its entirety here. But think about Titus chapter 2. 
Paul there tells the older women to teach the younger women. And what does Paul want the older women to teach the younger women? He basically gives them the curriculum. This, you older women, this is what you're to teach the younger women in the church. Are the older women to teach the younger women how to close the wage gap so women can earn just as much as men? Are those older women to teach the younger women how to break through the glass ceiling and become the first woman CEO or the first woman astronaut or whatever it might be? Are the older women supposed to teach the younger women how to overthrow the patriarchy and march for women's rights or how to be a girl boss? How to express their girl power? Oddly, none of those things are mentioned in Titus chapter 2. This is what Paul says instead. Teach the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be workers at home, to be submissive to their own husbands. Paul does not say train the young women in how to submit to a boss so they can climb the corporate ladder. No, he says train them how to submit to their husbands. Sadly, some women are much more respectful towards their bosses than they are their own husbands. Sadly, some women are much better at obeying their boss than they are the man they marry. That's not what Paul commanded the woman to do or, or, or what Paul commanded the young women to be taught. Just like a man needs skills appropriate to headship in order to be happily married, so there are certain skills women must develop to be happily married. And there's nothing in the culture and indeed very little in the church that is training women in these skills they need to be happily married. Of course, it's a set of skills that complements those of her husband. And I think those skills are, for the most part, listed for us there right, right in Titus chapter 2. In fact, this is something I find interesting for men and women. I find it so interesting that young people today will go to school for at least 12, probably 16 or even more years, and they will spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars preparing for a career, and then they will do almost no preparation for marriage, even though it is the quality of their family life that will determine their happiness far more than what happens in their career. You know, a couple that gets engaged might do two or three premarital sessions. They might read a book or listen to a talk on marriage, but that's the sum total of their preparation for the most important relationship in their life and the relationship that will probably have more to do with their happiness than anything else in life. Can you build a house without any training? Can you build a house without any house-building skills? Another thing I've noticed is that for people who fail at marriage, that is people who get divorced, they will often blame the institution of marriage rather than themselves. My marriage didn't work out, so there must be something wrong with marriage. And they'll say marriage is terrible and no one should get married. It's a broken institution. An institution that belongs to a bygone age. What I say to a person like that is, look, just because you don't know how to be married doesn't mean everybody else is equally clueless. Just because you don't know how to do something doesn't mean other people won't know how to do it. I mean, look, I'm not a very good basketball player. But I don't conclude from that that basketball is a terrible game and nobody should play it. Instead, I recognize I never learned the skills. I never had a great basketball coach. I never had somebody train me or, or teach me or mentor me in the finer points of basketball. But I recognize the problem's not with basketball. It's a perfectly good game. The problem is my lack of skills. And if I wanted to play basketball, I would need to do something about that. The problem's not with marriage. It's our lack of skills, our lack of understanding what marriage is, what it's for. The problem is not God's institution of marriage. The problem is we have disregarded God's design. 
We have not learned the, the rules or the skills needed to succeed in marriage. And this is why so many marriages are either miserable or fail. And this is why uh, those who have failed at marriage need to recognize marriage is not to blame. It's their own sin, their own stupidity that is to blame, not the institution of marriage. Maybe their spouses. I mean, obviously, a lot, there's a lot of different ways to get it wrong. I'm just saying the institution of marriage is not the problem. Well, let's move this towards a conclusion. The woman's fruitfulness is by no means limited to motherhood. Being fruitful and multiplying uh, is, is, uh, is certainly, that can be understood in different ways. It's interesting, if you go to Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31 actually describes the woman being fruitful in other ways. Proverbs 31, 16 says she considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. So she goes on to plant a vineyard. Proverbs 31, 31 says give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Certainly the woman's fruitfulness includes her children, but it's more than that. The woman's fruitfulness is her glory. It's the beauty and creativity and loving touch she brings into her home. He rules over the home with his wisdom. She fills the home with her glory. She is a fruitful vine in the heart of her home. If he is the head, she is the heart. And how is she the heart? She fills it with this fruitful glory. 1 Corinthians 11 says the woman is the glory of the man. That makes her the glory of the house. Think of the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the temple when Solomon built this house for God. The Shekinah glory moved into that house. That is analogous to the woman's position in the home. She is a created version of the Shekinah glory. She is the created Shekinah of that house. See, marriage is easy when you do it God's way. Marriage is glorious when you do it God's way. When husbands love their wives and when wives respect their husbands, it is a beautiful thing. Let me give a few actionable points here for women who want to build their house as wives and mothers in a feminine way. Here's, here's my bottom line advice to you if you're a woman in today's world. Do not focus on equality. That's the buzzword you'll hear today. People want equal marriages. They want equality. That's what the world talks about. But I would say that is a distraction. And that mentality, the equality mentality, the egalitarian mentality, is going to lead to a power struggle in your marriage. It's going to produce competition and rivalry in your relationship. Don't focus on equality. Focus on reality. Okay? We've heard the red pill mentioned. The red pill is basically just synonymous for reality. Reality is more important than equality. And the reality is you and your husband are different. And you have different gifts, different abilities, different roles, different natures. If you focus on reality, equality will take care of itself. You'll arrive at the right kind of equality in your relationship. Because you will be going with the grain of how God designed you and your husband to live together. You'll be going with the grain of how God designed marriage to work. And of course, that means you'll be going against the grain of feminism and egalitarianism. A man is made to protect and to provide and to lead his family in love and wisdom. He is a king in his home, ruling for the good of all its members. A woman is made to create life, to nurture that life, to help her husband as a queen, ruling at his side, respecting him, submitting to him, obeying him, helping him fulfill the household mission. That's how God designed it to work. Now, Psalm 128 moves from 
the man and the woman to the kids. I'm not going to say a lot here. I've I've written a book on this. I'm not going to say a whole lot here, but I just want to point a few things out to you. What about the kids in Psalm 128? These kids are described as being like olive plants. Take note of that and the symbolism implied. In Romans chapter 11, the covenant people of God are described as an olive tree. It is a holy tree. It means our children are holy. And think about this further. What you get from olive plants, you get olive oil, which all throughout Scripture is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So the children born to us, born into a Christian home, are what Paul would call natural branches in Romans chapter 11. They're natural branches on that tree. They were born into the covenant, born into a covenant relationship because of God's promise to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children. God is their God, and they should be raised accordingly. But they're not just natural branches. They're spiritual branches filled with the Holy Spirit, the olive oil that, again, all throughout Scripture symbolizes God's Spirit. So how do you raise your children? How do you build a house that will stand in the way you raise your children. You need to teach your children their covenant identity. The covenant promises should shape the way you pray for them and discipline them, the way you train your children to think about themselves and their identity. And it's important to understand, too, children really are integral to the purpose of marriage. There's actually a huge number of people today who will get married, but then they'll treat children as optional. We don't want kids. And I know this is hard because not everybody can have kids, and barrenness is, is, is a great trial uh, to endure. But there are a lot of people who are just opting out of having kids altogether as though children were not really an integral part of marriage. Children are so, so important. Children link us with the past and the future, They call us out of ourselves and give us an opportunity to sacrifice for another, the strong for the weak. They represent hope that the kingdom of God will endure and extend into another generation. A culture that rejects children, say chooses pets over children, uh, that butchers children in the womb, that is a culture of death. We are called to rebuild a culture of life. And we do that by rebuilding family life, by being hospitable to children. Our goal is not just to build a house. Our goal is to build a whole civilization. And that means investing in our children, raising up a new generation of faithful covenant members, faithful covenant warriors. And again, I'm, I'm disappointed how even in conservative Christian circles, children will be marginalized. The most popular evangelical book on marriage of the last 20 years by a prominent Presbyterian pastor. It's almost 300 pages long, and it does not mention children at all. As if children are not part of the meaning of marriage. Okay, there's a hint as to what book I'm talking about. That is pathetic. That is wrong. The psalm ends this way. The Lord bless you out of Zion. And may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. The psalm starts with the blessed man. But where does this blessing come from? We're told here that it comes from Zion. Well, what is our Zion? We could ask, what is our Zion in the new covenant? Well, Hebrews 12 answers that question for us. Hebrews 12 says to a gathered congregation of Christian saints... You have not come to Mount Sinai, the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, and to blackness, darkness, and tempest. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the great assembly, and to the church of the firstborn. 
What is our Zion? In the new covenant, our Zion is the church. So husbands, fathers, if you want God's blessings, if you want the blessings of Zion for yourself and for your family, what do you need to do? You need to get your family to church because that is where the blessing is found because this blessing comes through the word and through the water and through the table. The Lord wants you to have pastoral care and oversight and accountability because those are essential ingredients to living a faithful life. God wants your family to be a part of his family. He wants you building your house to be a way of building his house. Churches should be family-friendly. Yes, that is true. But families should be church-friendly as well. Indeed, we might even say that in a certain way, families should be church-centered because you should prioritize the gathered worship of God's people over everything else in life because it truly is central. And so I'll just give you an example here. When you go on vacation... Get up on a Sunday morning and take your family to church, even on vacation. When your kid has a little league game, when your kid has a championship little league game, go to church instead when that game is on a Sunday. He's got a championship game on Sunday. That's, that's pretty important, but it's not as important as the worship of the triune God. Worship is always more important. Go to church. Go to a faithful church so your family can be a blessed family. Husbands and fathers, go to church so you can be the blessed man of Psalm 128. Get your family to church so your family can be the blessed family of Psalm 128. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for all the ways that you show your kindness to us. You are a good and gracious God. You have forgiven our sins. You are restoring us to yourself. Your grace restores us in our fallenness and restores us to your design uh, so that we can live the way you created us to live. And we pray that you would enable us to do so, that you would help us to build our houses according to your blueprint, your design, that you would help us to build our houses in such a way that we are building your house, that your kingdom might come. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.